The Moonstone Part Eleven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, read by Graham Redmond. Chapter Eleven. When the last of the guests had driven away, I went back into the inner hall and found Samuel at the side-table presiding over the brandy and soda-water. My lady and Miss Rachel came out of the drawing-room, followed by the two gentlemen. Mr. Godfrey had some brandy and soda-water. Mr. Franklin took nothing. He sat down, looking dead tired. The talking on this birthday occasion had, I suppose, been too much for him. My lady, turning round to wish them good-night, looked hard at the wicked colonel's legacy shining in her daughter's dress. "'Rachel,' she asked, "'where are you going to put your diamond to-night?' Miss Rachel was in high good spirits, just in that humour for talking nonsense, and perversely persisting in it as if it was sense, which you may sometimes have observed in young girls when they are highly wrought up at the end of an exciting day. First, she declared she didn't know where to put the diamond. Then she said, on her dressing-table, of course, along with her other things. Then she remembered that the diamond might take to shining of itself with its awful moony light in the dark, and that would terrify her in the dead of night. Then she bethought herself of an Indian cabinet which stood in her sitting-room, and instantly made up her mind to put the Indian diamond in the Indian cabinet, for the purpose of permitting two beautiful native productions to admire each other. Having let her little flow of nonsense run on as far as that point, her mother interposed and stopped her. "'My dear, your Indian cabinet has no lock to it,' says my lady. "'Good heavens, mamma! cried Miss Rachel. "'Is this an hotel? Are there thieves in the house?' Without taking notice of this fantastic way of talking, my lady wished the gentleman good-night. She next turned to Miss Rachel and kissed her. "'Why not let me keep the diamond for you to-night?' she asked. Miss Rachel received that proposal as she might ten years since have received a proposal to part her from a new doll. My lady saw there was no reasoning with her that night— "'Come into my room, Rachel, the first thing to-morrow morning,' she said. "'I shall have something to say to you.' With those last words she left us slowly, thinking her own thoughts and, to all appearance, not best pleased with the way by which they were leading her. Miss Rachel was the next to say good-night. She shook hands first with Mr. Godfrey, who was standing at the other end of the hall looking at a picture, then she turned back to Mr. Franklin, still sitting weary and silent in a corner. What words passed between them I can't say, but standing near the old oak frame which holds our large looking-glass, I saw her reflected in it, slyly slipping the locket which Mr. Franklin had given to her out of the bosom of her dress and showing it to him for a moment with a smile, which certainly meant something out of the common, before she tripped off to bed. This incident staggered me a little in the reliance I had previously felt on my own judgment. I began to think that Penelope might be right about the state of her young lady's affections after all. As soon as Miss Rachel left him eyes to see with, Mr. Franklin noticed me. His variable humour, shifting about everything, had shifted about the Indians already. "'Betteridge,' he said, I'm half inclined to think I took Mr. Murthwaite too seriously when we had that talk in the shrubbery. I wonder whether he has been trying any of his traveller's tales on us. Do you really mean to let the dogs loose? I'll relieve them of their collars, sir, I answered, and leave them free to take a turn in the night if they smell a reason for it. All right, says Mr. Franklin, we'll see what is to be done to-morrow. I am not at all disposed to alarm my aunt, Betteridge, without a very pressing reason for it. Good night. He looked so worn and pale as he nodded to me, and took his candle to go upstairs, that I ventured to advise his having a drop of brandy and water by way of nightcap. 
Mr. Godfrey, walking towards us from the other end of the hall, backed me. He pressed Mr. Franklin in the friendliest manner to take something before he went to bed. I only note these trifling circumstances because, after all I had seen and heard that day, it pleased me to observe that our two gentlemen were on just as good terms as ever. Their warfare of words, heard by Penelope in the drawing-room, and their rivalry for the best place in Miss Rachel's good graces, seemed to have set no serious difference between them. But there, they were both good-tempered, and both men of the world, and there is certainly this merit in people of station, that they are not nearly so quarrelsome among each other as people of no station at all. Mr. Franklin declined the brandy and water, and went upstairs with Mr. Godfrey, their rooms being next door to each other. On the landing, however, either his cousin persuaded him, or he veered about and changed his mind as usual. "'Perhaps I may want it in the night,' he called down to me. "'Send up some brandy and water into my room.' I sent up Samuel with the brandy and water, and then went out and unbuckled the dog's collars. They both lost their heads with astonishment on being set loose at that time of night, and jumped upon me like a couple of puppies. However, the rain soon cooled them down again. They lapped a drop of water each, and crept back into their kennels. As I went into the house I noticed signs in the sky which betokened a break in the weather for the better. For the present it still poured heavily, and the ground was in a perfect sop. Samuel and I went all over the house, and shut up as usual. I examined everything myself, and trusted nothing to my deputy on this occasion. All was safe and fast when I rested my old bones in bed between midnight and one in the morning. The worries of the day had been a little too much for me, I suppose. At any rate I had a touch of Mr. Franklin's malady that night. It was sunrise before I fell off at last into a sleep. All the time I lay awake the house was as quiet as the grave. Not a sound stirred but the splash of the rain, and the sighing of the wind among the trees, as a breeze sprang up with the morning. About half-past seven I woke, and opened my window on a fine sunshiny day. The clock had struck eight, and I was just going out to chain up the dogs again, when I heard a sudden whisking of petticoats on the stairs behind me. I turned about, and there was Penelope flying down after me like mad. "'Father!' she screamed. "'Come upstairs, for God's sake! The diamond is gone!' "'Are you out of your mind?' I asked her. "'Gone!' said Penelope. "'Gone! Nobody knows how! Come up and see!' She dragged me after her into our young lady's sitting-room, which opened into her bedroom. There, on the threshold of her bedroom door, stood Miss Rachel, almost as white in the face as the white dressing-gown that clothed her. There also stood the two doors of the Indian cabinet, wide open. One of the drawers inside was pulled out as far as it would go. "'Look!' says Penelope. I myself saw Miss Rachel put the diamond into that drawer last night. I went to the cabinet. The drawer was empty. "'Is this true, Miss?' I asked. With a look that was not like herself, with a voice that was not like her own, Miss Rachel answered, as my daughter had answered, "'The diamond is gone!' Having said those words, she withdrew into her bedroom and shut and locked the door. Before we knew which way to turn next, my lady came in, hearing my voice in her daughter's sitting-room, and wondering what had happened. The news of the loss of the diamond seemed to petrify her. She went straight to Miss Rachel's bedroom, and insisted on being admitted. Miss Rachel let her in. The alarm, running through the house like fire, caught the two gentlemen next. Mr. Godfrey was the first to come out of his room. All he did when he heard what had happened was to hold up his hands in a state of bewilderment, which didn't say much for his natural strength of mind. Mr. Franklin, whose clear head I had confidently counted on to advise us, 
seemed to be as helpless as his cousin when he heard the news in his turn. For a wonder, he had had a good night's rest at last, and the unaccustomed luxury of sleep had, as he said himself, apparently stupefied him. However, when he had swallowed his cup of coffee, which he always took on the foreign plan some hours before he ate any breakfast, his brains brightened. The clear-headed side of him turned up, and he took the matter in hand resolutely and cleverly, much as follows. He first sent for the servants, and told them to leave all the lower doors and windows, with the exception of the front door which I had opened, exactly as they had been left when we locked up overnight. He next proposed to his cousin and to me to make quite sure, before we took any further steps, that the diamond had not accidentally dropped somewhere out of sight, say at the back of the cabinet, or down behind the table on which the cabinet stood. Having searched in both places and found nothing, having also questioned Penelope and discovered from her no more than the little she had already told me, Mr. Franklin suggested next extending our inquiries to Miss Rachel, and sent Penelope to knock at her bedroom door. My lady answered the knock, and closed the door behind her. The moment after we heard it locked inside by Miss Rachel. My mistress came out among us, looking sorely puzzled and distressed. "'The loss of the diamond seems to have quite overwhelmed Rachel,' she said in reply to Mr. Franklin. "'She shrinks in the strangest manner from speaking of it, even to me. It is impossible you can see her for the present.' Having added to our perplexities by this account of Miss Rachel, my lady, after a little effort, recovered her usual composure, and acted with her usual decision. "'I suppose there is no help for it,' she said quietly. "'I suppose I have no alternative but to send for the police.' "'And the first thing for the police to do,' added Mr. Franklin, catching her up, is to lay hands on the Indian jugglers who performed here last night. My lady and Mr. Godfrey, not knowing what Mr. Franklin and I knew, both started, and both looked surprised. "'I can't stop to explain myself now,' Mr. Franklin went on. "'I can only tell you that the Indians have certainly stolen the diamond. Give me a letter of introduction.' says he, addressing my lady, to one of the magistrates at Frisinghall, merely telling him that I represent your interests and wishes, and let me ride off with it instantly. Our chance of catching the thieves may depend on our not wasting one unnecessary minute. Nota bene, whether it was the French side or the English, the right side of Mr. Franklin seemed to be uppermost now, the only question was, how long would it last? He put pen, ink, and paper before his aunt, who, as it appeared to me, wrote the letter he wanted a little unwillingly. If it had been possible to overlook such an event as the loss of a jewel worth twenty thousand pounds, I believe, with my lady's opinion of her late brother, and her distrust of his birthday gift, it would have been privately a relief to her to let the thieves get off with the moonstone scot-free. I went out with Mr. Franklin to the stables, and took the opportunity of asking him how the Indians, whom I suspected of course as shrewdly as he did, could possibly have got into the house. One of them might have slipped into the hall in the confusion when the dinner company were going away, says Mr. Franklin. The fellow may have been under the sofa while my aunt and Rachel were talking about where the diamond was to be put for the night. He would only have to wait till the house was quiet, and there it would be in the cabinet to be had for the taking. With those words he called to the groom to open the gate, and galloped off. This seemed certainly to be the only rational explanation, but how had the thief contrived to make his escape from the house? I had found the front door locked and bolted as I had left it at night, when I went to open it after getting up. As for the other doors and windows, there they were still all safe and fast to speak for themselves. The dogs, too? 
Suppose the thief had got away by dropping from one of the upper windows, how had he escaped the dogs? Had he come provided for them with drugged meat? As the doubt crossed my mind, the dogs themselves came galloping at me round a corner, rolling each other over on the wet grass in such lively health and spirits that it was with no small difficulty I brought them to reason and chained them up again. The more I turned it over in my mind, the less satisfactory Mr. Franklin's explanation appeared to be. We had our breakfasts. Whatever happens in a house, robbery or murder, it doesn't matter. You must have your breakfast. When we had done, my lady sent for me, and I found myself compelled to tell her all that I had hitherto concealed relating to the Indians and their plot. Being a woman of a high courage, she soon got over the first startling effect of what I had to communicate. Her mind seemed to be far more perturbed about her daughter than about the heathen rogues and their conspiracy. You know how odd Rachel is, and how differently she behaves sometimes from other girls, my lady said to me. But I have never in all my experience seen her so strange and so reserved as she is now. The loss of her jewel seems almost to have turned her brain. Who would have thought that horrible diamond could have laid such a hold on her in so short a time? It was certainly strange. Taking toys and trinkets in general, Miss Rachel was nothing like so mad after them as most young girls. Yet there she was, still locked up inconsolably in her bedroom. It is but fair to add that she was not the only one of us in the house who was thrown out of the regular groove. Mr. Godfrey, for instance, though professionally a sort of consoler-general, seemed to be at a loss where to look for his own resources. Having no company to amuse him, and getting no chance of trying what his experience of women in distress could do towards comforting Miss Rachel, he wandered hither and thither about the house and gardens in an aimless, uneasy way. He was in two different minds about what it became him to do after the misfortune that had happened to us. Ought he to relieve the family, in their present situation, of the responsibility of him as a guest, or ought he to stay on the chance that even his humble services might be of some use? He decided ultimately that the last course was perhaps the most customary and considerate course to take in such a very peculiar case of family distress as this was. Circumstances try the metal a man is really made of. Mr. Godfrey, tried by circumstances, showed himself of weaker metal than I had thought him to be. As for the women servants, excepting Rosanna Spearman, who kept by herself, they took to whispering together in corners and staring at nothing suspiciously, as is the manner of that weaker half of the human family when anything extraordinary happens in a house. I myself acknowledged to have been fidgety and ill-tempered. The cursed moonstone had turned us all upside down. A little before eleven Mr. Franklin came back. The resolute side of him had, to all appearance, given way in the interval since his departure under the stress that had been laid on it. He had left us at a gallop, he came back to us at a walk. When he went away he was made of iron, when he returned he was stuffed with cotton as limp as limp could be. "'Well,' says my lady, "'are the police coming?' "'Yes,' says Mr. Franklin, "'they said they would follow me in a fly. "'Superintendent Seagrave of your local police force "'and two of his men. "'A mere form. "'The case is hopeless.' "'What? "'Have the Indians escaped, sir?' I asked. "'The poor ill-used Indians have been most unjustly put in prison,' "'says Mr. Franklin. "'They are as innocent as the babe unborn. "'My idea that one of them was hidden in the house has ended.' like all the rest of my ideas, in smoke. "'It's been proved,' says Mr. Franklin, dwelling with great relish on his own incapacity, to be simply impossible. After astonishing us by announcing this totally new turn in the matter of the moonstone, our young gentleman, at his aunt's request, took a seat and explained himself. It appeared that the resolute side of him had held out as far as Frizinghall. Hall. 
He had put the whole case plainly before the magistrate, and the magistrate had at once sent for the police. The first inquiries instituted about the Indians showed that they had not so much as attempted to leave the town. Further questions addressed to the police proved that all three had been seen returning to Frising Hall with their boy on the previous night between ten and eleven, which, regard being had to hours and distances, also proved that they had walked straight back after performing on our terrace. Later still, at midnight, the police, having occasion to search the common lodging-house where they lived, had seen them all three again, and their little boy with them as usual. Soon after midnight I myself had safely shut up the house. Plainer evidence than this, in favour of the Indians, there could not well be. The magistrate said there was not even a case of suspicion against them so far, but as it was just possible, when the police came to investigate the matter, that discoveries affecting the jugglers might be made, he would contrive, by committing them as rogues and vagabonds, to keep them at our disposal under lock and key for a week. They had ignorantly done something, I forget what, in the town, which barely brought them within the operation of the law. Every human institution, justice included, will stretch a little if you only pull it the right way. The worthy magistrate was an old friend of my lady's, and the Indians were committed for a week, as soon as the court opened that morning. Such was Mr. Franklin's narrative of events at Frisinghall. The Indian clue to the mystery of the lost jewel was now, to all appearance, a clue that had broken in our hands. If the jugglers were innocent, who in the name of wonder had taken the moonstone out of Miss Rachel's drawer? Ten minutes later, to our infinite relief, Superintendent Seagrave arrived at the house. He reported passing Mr. Franklin on the terrace, sitting in the sun, I suppose with the Italian side of him uppermost, and warning the police as they went by that the investigation was hopeless before the investigation had begun. For a family in our situation, the superintendent of the Frising Hall Police was the most comforting officer you could wish to see. Mr. Seagrave was tall and portly, and military in his manners. He had a fine commanding voice, and a mighty resolute eye, and a grand frock-coat which buttoned beautifully up to his leather stock. "'I'm the man you want,' was written all over his face, and he ordered his two inferior policemen about with a severity which convinced us all that there was no trifling with him. He began by going round the premises, outside and in, the result of that investigation proving to him that no thieves had broken in upon us from outside, and that the robbery consequently must have been committed by some person in the house. I leave you to imagine the state the servants were in when this official announcement first reached their ears. The superintendent decided to begin by examining the boudoir, and, that done, to examine the servants next. At the same time he posted one of his men on the staircase, which led to the servants' bedrooms, with instructions to let nobody in the house pass him till further orders. At this latter proceeding, the weaker half of the human family went distracted on the spot. They bounced out of their corners, whisked upstairs in a body to Miss Rachel's room, Rosanna Spearman being carried away among them this time, burst in on Superintendent Seagrave, and, all looking equally guilty, summoned him to say which of them he suspected at once. Mr. Superintendent proved equal to the occasion. He looked at them with his resolute eye, and he cowed them with his military voice. "'Now then, you women, go downstairs again, every one of you. I won't have you here. Look!' says Mr. Superintendent, suddenly pointing to a little smear of the decorative painting on Miss Rachel's door, at the outer edge just under the lock. Look what mischief the petticoats of some of you have done already! Clear out! Clear out! Rosanna Spearman, who was nearest to him, and nearest to the little smear on the door, set the example of obedience, and slipped off instantly to her work. The rest followed her out. 
the superintendent finished his examination of the room, and, making nothing of it, asked me who had first discovered the robbery. My daughter had first discovered it. My daughter was sent for. Mr. Superintendent proved to be a little too sharp with Penelope at starting. Now, young woman, attend to me, and mind you speak the truth. Penelope fired up instantly. I've never been taught to tell lies, Mr. Policeman, and if father can stand there and hear me accused of falsehood and thieving, and my own bedroom shut against me, and my character taken away, which is all a poor girl has left, he's not the good father I take him for. A timely word from me put Justice and Penelope on a pleasanter footing together. The questions and answers went swimmingly, and ended in nothing worth mentioning. My daughter had seen Miss Rachel put the diamond in the drawer of the cabinet the last thing at night. She had gone in with Miss Rachel's cup of tea at eight the next morning, and had found the drawer open and empty. Upon that she had alarmed the house, and there was an end of Penelope's evidence. Mr. Superintendent next asked to see Miss Rachel herself. Penelope mentioned his request through the door. The answer reached us by the same road. I have nothing to tell the policeman. I can't see anybody. Our experienced officer looked equally surprised and offended when he heard that reply. I told him my young lady was ill and begged him to wait a little and see her later. We thereupon went downstairs again, and were met by Mr. Godfrey and Mr. Franklin crossing the hall. The two gentlemen, being inmates of the house, were summoned to say if they could throw any light on the matter. Neither of them knew anything about it. Had they heard any suspicious noises during the previous night? They had heard nothing but the pattering of the rain. Had I, lying awake longer than either of them, heard nothing either? Nothing. Released from examination, Mr. Franklin, still sticking to the helpless view of our difficulty, whispered to me, That man will be of no earthly use to us. Superintendent Seagrave is an ass. Released in his turn, Mr. Godfrey whispered to me, Evidently a most competent person, Betteridge, I have the greatest faith in him. Many men, many opinions, as one of the ancients said before my time. Mr. Superintendent's next proceeding took him back to the boudoir again, with my daughter and me at his heels. His object was to discover whether any of the furniture had been moved during the night out of its customary place, his previous investigation in the room having apparently not gone quite far enough to satisfy his mind on this point. While we were still poking about among the chairs and tables, the door of the bedroom was suddenly opened. After having denied herself to everybody, Miss Rachel, to our astonishment, walked into the midst of us of her own accord. She took up her garden hat from a chair, and then went straight to Penelope with this question. "'Mr. Franklin Blake sent you with a message to me this morning?' "'Yes, miss.' "'He wished to speak to me, didn't he?' "'Yes, miss.' "'Where is he now?' Hearing voices on the terrace below, I looked out of window and saw the two gentlemen walking up and down together. Answering for my daughter, I said, "'Mr. Franklin is on the terrace, miss.' Without another word, without heeding Mr. Superintendent, who tried to speak to her, pale as death and wrapped up strangely in her own thoughts, she left the room and went down to her cousins on the terrace. It showed a want of due respect, it showed a breach of good manners on my part, but for the life of me I couldn't help looking out of window when Miss Rachel met the gentleman outside. She went up to Mr. Franklin without appearing to notice Mr. Godfrey, who thereupon drew back and left them by themselves. What she said to Mr. Franklin appeared to be spoken vehemently. It lasted but for a short time, and, judging by what I saw of his face from the window, seemed to astonish him beyond all power of expression. While they were still together, my lady appeared on the terrace. 
Miss Rachel saw her, said a few last words to Mr. Franklin, and suddenly went back into the house again before her mother came up with her. My lady, surprised herself, and noticing Mr. Franklin's surprise, spoke to him. Mr. Godfrey joined them and spoke also. Mr. Franklin walked away a little between the two, telling them what had happened, I suppose, for they both stopped short after taking a few steps, like persons struck with amazement. I had just seen as much as this when the door of the sitting-room was opened violently. Miss Rachel walked swiftly through to her bedroom, wild and angry, with fierce eyes and flaming cheeks. Mr. Superintendent once more attempted to question her. She turned round on him at her bedroom door. "'I have not sent for you,' she cried out vehemently. "'I don't want you. My diamond is lost. Neither you nor anybody else will ever find it.' With those words she went in and locked the door in our faces. Penelope, standing nearest to it, heard her burst out crying the moment she was alone again. In a rage one moment, in tears the next. What did it mean? I told the superintendent it meant that Miss Rachel's temper was upset by the loss of her jewel. Being anxious for the honour of the family, it distressed me to see my young lady forget herself even with a police officer, and I made the best excuse I could accordingly. In my own private mind I was more puzzled by Miss Rachel's extraordinary language and conduct than words can tell. Taking what she had said at her bedroom door as a guide to guess by, I could only conclude that she was mortally offended by our sending for the police, and that Mr. Franklin's astonishment on the terrace was caused by her having expressed herself to him, as the person chiefly instrumental in fetching the police, to that effect. If this guess was right, why, having lost her diamond, should she object to the presence in the house of the very people whose business it was to recover it for her? And how, in heaven's name, could she know that the moonstone would never be found again? As things stood, at present no answer to those questions was to be hoped for from anybody in the house. Mr. Franklin appeared to think it a point of honour to forbear repeating to a servant, even to so old a servant as I was, what Miss Rachel had said to him on the terrace. Mr. Godfrey, who, as a gentleman and a relative, had been probably admitted into Mr. Franklin's confidence, respected that confidence as he was bound to do. My lady, who was also in the secret, no doubt, and who alone had access to Miss Rachel, owned openly that she could make nothing of her. "'You madden me when you talk of the diamond!' All her mother's influence failed to extract from her a word more than that. Here we were, then, at a deadlock about Miss Rachel, and at a deadlock about the Moonstone. In the first case my lady was powerless to help us. In the second, as you shall presently judge, Mr. Seagrave was fast approaching the condition of a superintendent at his wit's end. Having ferreted about all over the boudoir, without making any discoveries among the furniture, our experienced officer applied to me to know whether the servants in general were or were not acquainted with the place in which the diamond had been put for the night. "'I knew where it was put, sir,' I said, to begin with. Samuel the footman knew also, for he was present in the hall when they were talking about where the diamond was to be kept that night. My daughter knew, as she has already told you. She or Samuel may have mentioned the thing to the other servants, or the other servants may have heard the talk for themselves through the side door of the hall, which might have been open to the back staircase. For all I can tell, everybody in the house may have known where the jewel was last night. My answer presenting rather a wide field for Mr. Superintendent's suspicions to range over, he tried to narrow it by asking about the servants' characters next. I thought directly of Rosanna Spearman, 
but it was neither my place nor my wish to direct suspicion against a poor girl whose honesty had been above all doubt as long as I had known her. The matron of the reformatory had reported her to my lady as a sincerely penitent and thoroughly trustworthy girl. It was the superintendent's business to discover reason for suspecting her first, and then, and not till then, it would be my duty to tell him how she came into my lady's service. "'All our people have excellent characters,' I said, "'and all have deserved the trust their mistress has placed in them.' After that there was but one thing left for Mr. Seagrave to do, namely to set to work and tackle the servant's characters himself. One after another they were examined. One after another they proved to have nothing to say, and said it, so far as the women were concerned, at great length, and with a very angry sense of the embargo laid on their bedrooms. The rest of them being sent back to their places downstairs, Penelope was then summoned and examined separately a second time. My daughter's little outbreak of temper in the boudoir, and her readiness to think herself suspected, appeared to have produced an unfavourable impression on Superintendent Seagrave. It seemed also to dwell a little on his mind that she had been the last person who saw the diamond at night. When the second questioning was over, my girl came back to me in a frenzy. There was no doubt of it any longer. The police officer had almost as good as told her she was the thief. I could scarcely believe him, taking Mr. Franklin's view, to be quite such an ass as that. But though he said nothing, the eye with which he looked at my daughter was not a very pleasant eye to see. I laughed it off with poor Penelope as something too ridiculous to be treated seriously, which it certainly was. Secretly, I am afraid, I was foolish enough to be angry too. It was a little trying, it was indeed. My girl sat down in a corner with her apron over her head, quite broken-hearted. Foolish of her, you will say. She might have waited till he openly accused her. Well, being a man of just and equal temper, I admit that. Still, Mr. Superintendent might have remembered— Never mind what he might have remembered. The devil take him! The next and last step in the investigation brought matters, as they say, to a crisis. The officer had an interview, at which I was present, with my lady. After informing her that the diamond must have been taken by somebody in the house, he requested permission for himself and his men to search the servants' rooms and boxes on the spot. My good mistress, like the generous high-bred woman she was, refused to let us be treated like thieves. "'I will never consent to make such a return as that,' she said, "'for all I owe to the faithful servants who are employed in my house.' Mr. Superintendent made his bow, with a look in my direction, which said plainly, "'Why employ me if you were to tie my hands in this way?' As head of the servants I felt directly that we were bound, in justice to all parties, not to profit by our mistress's generosity. "'We gratefully thank your ladyship,' I said, "'but we ask permission to do what is right in this matter by giving up our keys. "'When Gabriel Betteridge sets the example,' says I, stopping Superintendent Seagrave at the door, "'the rest of the servants will follow, I promise you.' There are my keys to begin with. My lady took me by the hand, and thanked me with the tears in her eyes. Lord, what would I not have given at that moment for the privilege of knocking Superintendent Seagrave down? As I had promised for them, the other servants followed my lead, sorely against the grain, of course, but all taking the view that I took. The women were a sight to see while the police officers were rummaging among their things. The cook looked as if she could grill Mr. Superintendent alive on a furnace, and the other women looked as if they could eat him when he was done. 
The search over, and no diamond or sign of a diamond being found, of course, anywhere, Superintendent Seagrave retired to my little room to consider with himself what he was to do next. He and his men had now been hours in the house, and had not advanced us one inch towards a discovery of how the moonstone had been taken, or of whom we were to suspect as the thief. While the police officer was still pondering in solitude, I was sent for to see Mr. Franklin in the library. To my unutterable astonishment, just as my hand was on the door, it was suddenly opened from the inside, and out walked Rosanna Spearman. After the library had been swept and cleaned in the morning, neither first nor second housemaid had any business in that room at any later period of the day. I stopped Rosanna Spearman and charged her with a breach of domestic discipline on the spot. "'What might you want in the library at this time of day?' I inquired. "'Mr. Franklin Blake dropped one of his rings upstairs,' says Rosanna, "'and I have been into the library to give it to him.' The girl's face was all in a flush as she made me that answer, and she walked away with a toss of her head and a look of self-importance, which I was quite at a loss to account for. The proceedings in the house had doubtless upset all the women servants, more or less, but none of them had gone clean out of their natural characters, as Rosanna, to all appearance, had now gone out of hers. I found Mr. Franklin writing at the library table. He asked for a conveyance to the railway station the moment I entered the room. The first sound of his voice informed me that we now had the resolute side of him uppermost once more. The man made of cotton had disappeared, and the man made of iron sat before me again. "'Going to London, sir?' I asked. "'Going to telegraph to London,' says Mr. Franklin. "'I have convinced my aunt that we must have a cleverer head than Superintendent Seagraves to help us.' and I have got her permission to dispatch a telegram to my father. He knows the chief commissioner of police, and the commissioner can lay his hand on the right man to solve the mystery of the diamond. Talking of mysteries, by the by, says Mr. Franklin, dropping his voice, I have another word to say to you before you go to the stables. Don't breathe a word of it to anybody as yet, but either Rosanna Spearman's head is not quite right, or I am afraid she knows more about the moonstone than she ought to know. I can hardly tell whether I was more startled or distressed at hearing him say that. If I had been younger I might have confessed as much to Mr. Franklin, but when you are old you acquire one excellent habit. In cases where you don't see your way clearly you hold your tongue. She came in here with a ring I dropped in my bedroom. Mr. Franklin went on. When I had thanked her, of course I expected her to go. Instead of that she stood opposite to me at the table, looking at me in the oddest manner, half frightened and half familiar. I couldn't make it out. "'This is a strange thing about the diamond, sir,' she said in a curiously sudden headlong way. I said yes it was, and wondered what was coming next.' Upon my honour, Betteridge, I think she must be wrong in the head. She said, They will never find the diamond, sir, will they? No, nor the person who took it. I'll answer for that. She actually nodded and smiled at me. Before I could ask her what she meant, we heard your step outside. I suppose she was afraid of your catching her here. At any rate, she changed colour and left the room. What on earth does it mean?' I could not bring myself to tell him the girl's story even then. It would have been almost as good as telling him that she was the thief. Besides, even if I had made a clean breast of it, and even supposing she was the thief, the reason why she should let out her secret to Mr. Franklin of all the people in the world would have been still as far to seek as ever. I can't bear the idea of getting the poor girl into a scrape merely because she has a flighty way with her and talks very strangely, Mr. Franklin went on, 
and yet if she had said to the superintendent what she said to me, fool as he is, I'm afraid— He stopped there and left the rest unspoken. "'The best way, sir,' I said, "'will be for me to say two words privately to my mistress about it at the first opportunity. "'My lady has a very friendly interest in Rosanna, "'and the girl may only have been forward and foolish after all. "'When there's a mess of any kind in a house, sir, "'the women servants like to look at the gloomy side. "'It gives the poor wretches a kind of importance in their own eyes.' If there's anybody ill, trust the women for prophesying that the person will die. If it's a jewel lost, trust them for prophesying that it will never be found again. This view, which I am bound to say I thought a probable view myself on reflection, seemed to relieve Mr. Franklin mightily. He folded up his telegram and dismissed the subject. On my way to the stables to order the pony chaise, I looked in at the servants' hall where they were at dinner. Rosanna Spearman was not among them. On inquiry I found that she had been suddenly taken ill and had gone upstairs to her own room to lie down. Curious, she looked well enough when I saw her last, I remarked. Penelope followed me out. Don't talk in that way before the rest of them, father, she said. You only make them harder on Rosanna than ever. The poor thing is breaking her heart about Mr. Franklin Blake. Here was another view of the girl's conduct. If it was possible for Penelope to be right, the explanation of Rosanna's strange language and behaviour might have been all in this, that she didn't care what she said so long as she could surprise Mr. Franklin into speaking to her. Granting that to be the right reading of the riddle, it accounted perhaps for her flighty, self-conceited manner when she passed me in the hall. Though he had only said three words, still she had carried her point, and Mr. Franklin had spoken to her. I saw the pony harnessed myself. In the infernal network of mysteries and uncertainties that now surrounded us, I declare it was a relief to observe how well the buckles and straps understood each other. When you had seen the pony backed into the shafts of the chaise, you had seen something there was no doubt about, and that, let me tell you, was becoming a treat of the rarest kind in our household. Going round with the chaise to the front door, I found not only Mr. Franklin, but Mr. Godfrey and Superintendent Seagrave also waiting for me on the steps. Mr. Superintendent's reflections, after failing to find the diamond in the servants' rooms or boxes, had led him, it appeared, to an entirely new conclusion. Still sticking to his first text, namely that somebody in the house had stolen the jewel, our experienced officer was now of opinion that the thief— he was wise enough not to name poor Penelope, whatever he might privately think of her, had been acting in concert with the Indians, and he accordingly proposed shifting his inquiries to the jugglers in the prison at Frisinghall. Hearing of this new move, Mr. Franklin had volunteered to take the superintendent back to the town, from which he could telegraph to London as easily as from our station. Mr. Godfrey, still devoutly believing in Mr. Seagrave, and greatly interested in witnessing the examination of the Indians, had begged leave to accompany the officer to Frisinghall. One of the two inferior policemen was to be left at the house in case anything happened. The other was to go back with the superintendent to the town. So the four places in the pony chaise were just filled. Before he took the reins to drive off, Mr. Franklin walked me away a few steps, out of hearing of the others. "'I will wait to telegraph to London,' he said, "'till I see what comes of our examination of the Indians. My own conviction is that this muddle-headed local police officer is as much in the dark as ever, and is simply trying to gain time.' The idea of any of the servants being in league with the Indians is a preposterous absurdity, in my opinion. Keep about the house, Betteridge, till I come back, and try what you can make of Rosanna Spearman. 
I don't ask you to do anything degrading to your own self-respect or anything cruel towards the girl. I only ask you to exercise your observation more carefully than usual. We will make as light of it as we can before my aunt, but this is a more important matter than you may suppose. It is a matter of twenty thousand pounds, sir, I said, thinking of the value of the diamond. It's a matter of quieting Rachel's mind, answered Mr. Franklin gravely. I am very uneasy about her. He left me suddenly, as if he desired to cut short any further talk between us. I thought I understood why. Further talk might have let me into the secret of what Miss Rachel had said to him on the terrace. So they drove away to Frisinghall. I was ready enough, in the girl's own interest, to have a little talk with Rosanna in private. But the needful opportunity failed to present itself. She only came downstairs again at tea-time. When she did appear she was flighty and excited, had what they call an hysterical attack, took a dose of salvolatily by my lady's order, and was sent back to her bed. The day wore on to its end, drearily and miserably enough, I can tell you. Miss Rachel still kept her room, declaring that she was too ill to come down to dinner that day. My lady was in such low spirits about her daughter that I could not bring myself to make her additionally anxious by reporting what Rosanna Spearman had said to Mr. Franklin. Penelope persisted in believing that she was to be forthwith tried, sentenced, and transported for theft. The other women took to their Bibles and hymn-books, and looked as sour as verjuice over their reading, a result which I have observed in my sphere of life to follow generally on the performance of acts of piety at unaccustomed periods of the day. As for me, I hadn't even heart enough to open my Robinson Crusoe. I went out into the yard, and, being hard up for a little cheerful society, set my chair by the kennels, and talked to the dogs. Half an hour before dinner-time the two gentlemen came back from Frisinghall, having arranged with Superintendent Seagrave that he was to return to us the next day. They had called on Mr. Murthwaite, the Indian traveller, at his present residence near the town. At Mr. Franklin's request he had kindly given them the benefit of his knowledge of the language in dealing with those two out of the three Indians who knew nothing of English. The examination, conducted carefully and at great length, had ended in nothing not the shadow of a reason being discovered for suspecting the jugglers of having tampered with any of our servants. On reaching that conclusion, Mr. Franklin had sent his telegraphic message to London, and there the matter now rested till to-morrow came. So much for the history of the day that followed the birthday. Not a glimmer of light had broken in on us so far. A day or two after, however, the darkness lifted a little. How, and with what result, you shall presently see. End of chapter 11